Oh, ladies and gentlemen, we've got it back. It's back, ladies and gentlemen. World War Three memes are back. Can't just... It's just inject it into my veins as the world crumbles. In the world's pub, can be struck D. Bring the noise. On the Fifth End Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in circumstances. Yeah, I just, um, just, uh, just, you just have to, this is the futility of 21st century life, isn't it? Where you can't, you, you can't be, you can't quite be sad, right, about the potential of the world, you know, just going to shit. <laughs> yeah, you know I mean, it's no point. <laughs> like we're all acutely aware that it's futile doing so. So why not make memes? You know, what I mean? or why not just share memes? Like it's just why not, man? Why not? What's the point of sharing the news instead of just you can two birds with one stone? Share the news, but make it funny. That's all it is. Literally, I was on Twitter yesterday, and obviously we'll get to this in a week where briefly. Um, just I saw the news of uh, a Russian missile in Poland uh, land, you know, and um, kills two people. Uh, and the 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 hour I was awake for because it happened quite well not not late in the night, but it happened like a you know in the evening. So, um, most of the news was just like, unconfirmed, unconfirmed, unconfirmed. I'm just like, well, okay, it's not, it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's not, I'm not going to get concrete information tonight, most likely. So, um, but how I how did I get this information? I didn't get it. I didn't get it from watching Channel 4 News, and, and but it was actually on Channel 4 News, the, the dying embers of it, um, that particular broadcast that day. Um, but yeah, I saw World War Three. And what did I see? Uh, article 5, referencing the NATO article of, you know, defending any, you know, an, atta- an attack on a NATO- any NATO land is attack on all of them kind of thing. Um, and therefore, war, huh, what is it good for? Um, so, yeah, I saw those trending. I was just like, okay, World War Three memes are back, boys. <laughs> Hopped onto it. And I was like, I don't know what's happening, but, I'm in, uh, you know, but... And I, I kind of challenged, I kind of challenged myself within that. I was like, I'm gonna try and not, I'm gonna try and scroll through this and not laugh for at least five minutes, right? Just to, until I actually get the information of what's actually going on, right? So I quickly got the information of what was going on, right? And then the rest of it was just memes. But I saw one. I saw one where it was just like, um, uh, that dude, that the dude, the, the dude blinking, basically. You know, you, you've seen it. You know what I'm talking about. And um. Yeah, it was the caption was just like uh, <laughs> when, when you when you look outside and you see and you see the sun rising at nine pm. I was just, oh, I was just, I just, oh, so good, it's so good. It just, I don't know, man. It's just you have to, you have to laugh because what the fuck am I going to do about it? I ain't having the Cobra meeting. I'm not having the G20 meeting. It's not going to happen. So just, just. Just, just retweet your meme and then keep it moving. Honestly, that's all you can do. Um, it's what most people do when it comes to climate change. I remember um, when I remember we were talking about microplastics, right? You know, like I was, I was talking about microplastics before it was even a meme, bro. I was, I was talking about it, right? I, was, I talked about it a couple of times before the meme came out, uh, for, before everyone started catching onto it and started memeing about it, because that's what people do. They, they discover something that may or may not kill them. Um, or, or just um, is a threat to is a threat in some ways to human life, um, or a threat to the quality of human life. We should say, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do about microplastics? What are we gonna do about microplastics? You know what I mean? Just nothing. Can't do nothing. Same memes. That's all. That's the futility of life in twenty first century, ladies and, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it's just uh, it's a weird one. It's a weird one because you know I don't want to laugh, but. Damn, some of these memes just hit, man. Microplastics memes hit. I'm sorry, it's just funny. 
Um, so yeah, another day of um, another recording of me breathing out my mouth. Uh, my nose is incommunicado right now. It is um, cold as shit in my home. Um, and we'll continue to do so for the next, well, probably until fucking April, who knows, maybe May, um, because, honestly, uh, I I think I saw, um, from, uh, Sunday, uh, from Remembrance Sunday, it was, like, the hottest, quote-unquote, the hottest, um, Remembrance Sunday on record, and I was just like, yep, that sounds about right, (laughs) but it's gonna be cold at some point, so, you know, what what we what am I going to do? I don't care. Honestly, again, climate change. I care about it. Obviously, I'm doing my bit. I'm naturally just not naturally, but nurturing, nurturingly, nurturingly, nurturingly. Me, I am just. I'm just not built for. I'm not trying to drive cars. I'm not trying to, you know, jet off anywhere. Um, you know, I'm pretty fucking good. On um on on my my personal um attitude towards climate change, I feel I'm better than most, um, and I'll take that as a dub and keep it moving. Um, but yeah, yeah, I just I can't I can't see the hottest remember Sunday on record and be sad about that because I've I'm doing I'm doing what I can. I'm sorry, I'm I'm doing what I can. I'm spreading I'm spreading the word on WG every week. I'm sorry. Like, what else you want me to do? You want to give me some money so I can do something else? Go for it, man. Give me the cash. I will. I will spread words. I will. I'll spread the words I want. But I will spread words. Give me the cash. I'll do so. I'll do so on a higher scale. Go for it. Anyway, for my support weekend. Email to the Discord. Link, all that. All that. All that. All that. And the full show notes. What did I say? Who knows? Watch. <laughs> listen. Listen to every other episode to actually hear what I actually should say on that. Uh, go through the articles for yourself. Uh, support the writers. Make the show possible. Give the spin for yourself. And with that said. Let the beat drop and let's get into the show. In a week where Remembrance Day come and goes, um, yeah, so obviously talked about the poppies last week, um, and yeah, that's come and gone. Uh, cryptocurrency exchange FTX files for bankruptcy. Um, I have no idea uh, where to go to actually find um, good opinion on that, so hence why I'm not talking about it. Um, but yeah, cryptocurrency down the drain. Who, who saw that coming? Not me. Uh, Democrats in the US, obviously, retain control of the Senate. Uh, Russian missile hit, kills uh, two people in Poland. A side note, <coughs> imagine World War Three starting over two farmers dying in Poland. I'm, I'm sorry, you know, it's not, that's inconsiderate, but it's kind of crazy to think about if it actually, if it actually went down like that. Like, imagine just nuclear warfare because two, two farmers died. Like, that'd be <laughs> the history books, the documentaries, the memes would be crazy. Anyway, lastly, Trump announces he is running for president again in 2024. And I just felt it. I just felt it once again. America physically teetering once again. Uh, but let's begin with something I've talked about. Um, ad nauseum in, in my mind. Um, I haven't talked about it. In the grand scheme of things, I haven't talked about it often. But out of most of the topics I have, uh, specific topics I've talked about over the years, the World Cup is close. I've probably talked about it at least five times over the past couple of years. Um, over the lifespan of the show, probably six, six-ish, six-ish times. And that's, for a specific topic, that's a lot. Um, you know, I try and keep it broad. You know, you know me. I try and, uh, you know, every week is something different. Um, but, and, you know, in some way this is different because we're, not, we're technically not talking about the Qatar World Cup, even though it is days away. Um, and, uh, yep, yeah, it's already, it's already, uh, it's already looking, it's already looking pretty shit, um, especially for fans who, I saw a video today as I woke up of, um, of, uh, the, the fan area, fan, ho- I can't even call it a hotel, because it's literally just giving them a cabin, <laughs> don't know, do they have plumbing there, who knows, um, probably not, um, you're probably getting, the, you, them, they, you know what they're getting, they're getting a glamping treatment, that's basically what they're getting, they're getting glamping treatment, they're getting, a, they're getting, they're getting the highest possible ticket you can get, um, at a, at a festival, that's basically what they're getting, they're getting a cabin, 
and they may or may not be getting uh, their own uh, their own uh, portable portable loo. Um, but I I think that's even a stretch. I have no idea on the information. I haven't looked too deep into it, but it's still very hilarious to me. Enjoy that, guys. But meanwhile, I wanted to zoom out since this is hopefully the last time I talk about about this fucking World Cup um, until for another four years. Um, I just um I, I wanted to zoom out, so I founded this. Uh, founded. <laughs> I found this great um, little piece right here. Uh, by Jonathan Wilson, who is a columnist for The Guardian and Sports Illustrated, and also an author and an editor as well. And uh, this is via Unheard, and it's called The World Cup Has Never Been Beautiful. Um, so let's jump right in, because I feel like this is a good zoom-out topic, this is a good last topic before the World Cup even begins, and um, just a, you know, just a nice overall, um, a nice overall thought that it's not just Qatar that's garbage. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much been majority of the World Cups, if not all of them. Um, and it's dead at the root, basically. It's, it's, demon, it's demon time at the root um, of the World Cup. But let's jump right. James Madison in. Ben White and Marcus Rashford restored. Calvin Phillips and Kyle Walker risked a spy injury. As the England squad was announced yesterday... Obviously, a few days ago, the familiar excitement began to kindle. Even if the reported viewing figure for the 2018 final of 3.572 billion uh, appears to have been exaggerated, the World Cup is one of the few truly global events. The opening game is uh, is Qatar against Ecuador. Oh, must watch that one. Um, and the group is completed by Senegal and the Netherlands. It's hard to imagine any other ima- imagine many other spheres in which four such disparate countries compete on such a stage. And yet it's impossible not to approach Qatar with a sense of unease. This is the first World Cup since 1934 to be hosted by a nation that has not previously played in it. Why is Qatar so keen to be involved that he has spent an estimated $220 billion on staging the event? The answer is timeless. Hosting a World Cup has always been a political act. When Uruguay staged the first tournament in 1930, Juan guy. I must say Compistagai, but it might be Compistagui, uh, government underwrote the cost of travelling teams because it believed the tournament would, could, would promote the country's centenary of independence. The gamble paid off. Uruguay went on to beat Argentina 4-2 in the final. This was nothing compared to what happened in Italy four years later. Mussolini was well aware of the propagandistic uh, potential of, the, of sport, often being photographed riding a horse or skiing. In 1933, when he met Engelbert Dolfus at the beach resort of Riccioni, I'm saying like a, a proper Italian there, he donned a pair of swimming trunks while the diminutive Austrian Chancellor wore a sober suit. When you compete abroad, Mussolini told Italian athletes, the honour and sporting principle of the nation is entrusted to your muscles and, above all, your spirit. No doubt the Antwerp Olympics of 1920 were at the back of his mind. When the Italian athletes who turned up were a dishevelled bunch who sang the red flag. Twelve years later, they arrived in Los Angeles dr- dressed in matching black shirts and singing Gio Vineza, the hymn of the Italian fascist party. They went on to finish second in the medals table. Victories abroad, as Il Littor- Littorale uh, noted as early as 1928, quote, were clear signs of racial superiority, superiority, don't want to say that with, that are destined to reflect in many fields outside the sport, unquote. But the Italy's football coach throughout the 30s, Vittorio, uh, yeah, Vittorio Posso, was a fascist remains contested, but he certainly benefited from the regime's focus on muscular leadership. Uh, the, the norms that govern the game, he said, impose the principles of authority without which, in, without which order cannot exist. His side at the 1934 World Cup was brisk and physical and found referees benevolent. As the journalist Gianni Barrera uh, observed in his great history of Italian football, Luis Bayet, uh, the B- Belgian who oversaw the quarterfinal against Spain, quote, behaved as if he were well aware where the game was taking place, unquote. Excuse me. While there were numerous rumours about meetings between Mussolini and the Swedish referee Ivan Eklund, who unusually refereed both Italy's semi-final and final. 
Not that, con- not that anybody in Italy cared uh, much cared about the controversies, as Simon Martin's football and fascism makes clear. In La Gazzetta della Sport, Bruno Rocchi- Roggi uh, wrote uh, of the national team as, quote, little gallant soldiers who fight for an idea that is greater than them, unquote. While the Florentine fascist weekly Il Bargello described the World Cup win as, quote, the affirmation of an entire people, an indication of its virile and moral strength. It wasn't, though, just about winning the World Cup. It was also about projecting the idea of Italy as a modern nation. There had been heavy investment in stadiums for a decade before the tournament. Fans from France, Germany, Netherlands and Switzerland were subsided to come to Italy. Tickets were printed on high-quality paper to encourage visitors to keep them, and the fascist insignia they bore as souvenirs. The futurist artist Filippo Marinetti was commissioned to design a poster that focused on a powerful, thrusting figure in an Italian kit and bore the fa- fa- faces? faces? F-A-S-C-E-S? I, I, I don't know if that's um, supposed to be faces or not, but faces, I'm going to say faces, in one corner. Uh, stands produced for the tournament pursued a similar theme. Foreign journalists were impressed to the delight of Italian media. The sta- uh, quote, the spontaneous and heartfelt statements of our foreign colleagues, Rocky uh, wrote in La Gazzetta, are more, suffi- more than sufficient to show Mussolini's Italy, that was once little Italy of all imp- improvisations and apologies, has organised a festival of football with the style, flexibility, precision, even the courtesy and meticulousness that indicated an absolute maturity and preparedness. That was, a, that was a great chunk of words right there. Um, his response was extreme, but not uncommon. It was a similar eagerness to show off the Estado Novo that led the Getulio Vargas regime to bid for Brazil to host a 1942 World Cup. Although by the time that tournament was finally played in 1950, Vargas had been dispo- deposed. Argentina was chosen as host for 1978 tournament in 1966, the bid of one military junta uh, ultimately inherited by another. This political chaos was reflected in the official logo, which was based on the arms clasp above head gesture of Juan Perón, who had briefly returned to power in 1973 before dying and being succeeded by his wife Isabel, who was ousted three years later in a coup. <laughs> Fuck you know. Before the tournament was held, slums were destroyed or hidden from view. Um, side note, they also did that in 2016 and also 20... Was it 14 for the World Cup? I forgot what the British World... Uh, British... Brazilian uh, World Cup was, but obviously Rio Olympics as well. Um, they did all of that as well. They, they hid the favelas from view. Um, there's a great video on Vox um, that uh, kind of like uh, not explicitly was talking about it, but g- gave a good mention to it uh, visually, especially uh, to get into that. But yeah, they did. Um, they basically destroyed or hid um, hid the slums from view. Uh, distance rounded up and around a tenth of national budget spent on constructing or redeveloping stadiums. Most important, Argentina won. Um, so yeah, Argentina did that, and also Brazil did that uh, in the tw- 2010s when they had the World Cup and the uh, Rio Olympics. Whether, as is widely believed, the success sustained the junta in power is difficult to assess, but the, the two details seem telling. First, about 10 minutes walk from El Monumental, I'm not going to say it properly, <laughs> the stadium where Argentina beat the Netherlands in the final, is the ESMA, the Navy School of Mechanics, which, under the junta, became a notorious torture centre. Oh, how nice. When the prisoners, hearing the roars of the crowd celebrated in the cells, General George Acosta, one of the most brutal torturers, took out three of them in his car and wound them wound down the window so they could see celebrations on the streets to show them that their protests against the regime meant nothing beside the eruption of patriotic joy. Fucking hell, that's depressing. Fuck. Um, second, four years later after the invasion of the Falklands, Argentinian TV broadcasts were dominated by two things, news from the war and reruns of the glory of 1978. Qatar, then, is not unique. Every country to have hosted the World Cup has done so with some sort of soft power objective in mind. Even England, in 1966, saw their triumph blend with the idea of swinging London to project an image of a vibrant modern nation emerging from the gloom and stuffiness of the 50s and the loss of influence both politically and in football. The 6-3 defeat to Hungary in 1953 was essentially football's Suez. But this World Cup does feel different. This is partly down to the corruption that surrounded the award of hosting riots for 2018 and 2022. There is no evidence Qatar did anything wrong, but 16 of the 22 delegates who made the decision have either been convicted or credibly accused of wrongdoing. While many have wondered what was discussed at the lunch, nine days before the vote between Nicolas Sarkozy, the then French president, Tamim Al-Tani, 
who has uh, since succeeded his father as Emir of Qatar and, fr- the, and the, the French then UEFA president, Michel Platini. Then there are the well-reported human rights issues and the fact that ever since the Gulf states brought up major football clubs and the rights to stage other major fights and Formula 1 races, both the British media and fans are more aware than ever about sports washing. Uh, and thanks to WG, you are too. Um, I haven't watched an F1 race uh, since Happy to Happy last year, um, and I am kind of proud of myself for that. The way sport can be used to present a certain picture of a nation and garner influence. The phenomenon of certain fans backing the stars of the state that owns their club against its critics. See Newcastle fans criticising the fiancé of murdered Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Or Manchester City fans insisting on the guilt of Matthew Hedges who was accused of spying in Navi Davi. I was familiar even even before news broke that Qatar is actively paying fans from certain countries to sing on demand and help police social media. Meanwhile, for, uh, for those fans who do stay at home, there is a prospect of a winter sitting huddled under blankets struggling to afford rising energy prices caused by wars died by the last World Cup hosts, hoping that the power cut is over in time to watch the game. This is depressing. Fucking hell. Why is it going down this route? Please stop doing this. Please stop battering me with the fact that I'm cold. I'm starting to realise that my hand is cold and I'm putting it in my pocket as we speak. Why are you making me do this? Beamed live from a country that is only staging the tournament because of the profits it's made from selling gas. Geopolitics has a sudden immediacy. The FIFA president, Gianni Infantino, and Secretary General Fatma uh, Samura uh, wrote this month to each of the 32 competing football federations, urging them to not allow, quote, football to be dragged into every ideological or political battle that exists, unquote. Which is not, on the face of it, unreasonable, were it not for the fact that Qatar hosting the World Cup is itself part of a political battle, and that certain issues cannot be casually dismissed as differences of ideology. The latter speaks of the opportunity, quote, to welcome and embrace everyone, regardless of origin, background, religion, gender, sexual orientation, or nationality, unquote, and yet homosexuality is outlawed in Qatar. An existential threat uh, to a group of people is not, quote, an ideological or political battle, unquote. Indeed, it runs directly contrary to Article 3 of FIFA's own statutes, the value of which is now exposed as nil. Finally, there is the decision not to hold the World Cup in June slash July. Perhaps there is a case to be made that the European off-season should not dictate the timing of the World Cup. Why should a raft of countries be disbarred from hosting just because their climate does not fit? But this does not alter the realization that the bidding process for 2022 was a tournament uh, was for a tournament to be staged in June, July, and that the rules were changed after Qatar had won when it was decided that maybe trying to play or watch football in 40 plus degrees wasn't a great idea, even with whatever speculative cooling technology was being proposed. COVID-related changes to the schedule also have not helped, but the rejig to the Premier League calendar necessitated by by the November start means there are just seven days between the final domestic league game and the opening uh, opening match of the World Cup. There should have been eight, but three months ago, the start date was suddenly moved forward by a day. Apparently, so Qatar could play Ecuador with the eyes of the world upon them, undistracted by three other matches on the same day. The change was made just as global advertising campaign was launched, marking 100 days till the start of the World Cup, and immediately rendered inaccurate. The problem, perhaps, of a society in which the royal whim can override years of diligent planning. To put the lack of break in context, there has never previously been fewer than 16 days between the Champions League final and the first game of the World Cup, so most players have had three to four weeks beforehand. This means not only a greater likelihood of fatigue and injury for players, but also a lack of preparation time for national coaches, with the usual two to three weeks of build-up, reduced to three or four days. How can they work on anything but the most basic planning? There will be those who question how much this, how much this all matters. Football, after all, is only a game. It is just 22 players chasing around an inflated polyurethane sphere. I I always struggle saying sphere. Uh, I I always have to, like, rejig my mouth to actually say sphere. (laughs) I have to have a sphere (laughs) to take a breath before I say it. Compared to uh, persecuted minorities and workers toiling in abject conditions, who cares about the football? But the World Cup does matter. It matters to those who play it and those who watch it and those who believe, along with Jules Rimet, uh, that despite it all, the tournament can be an event that fosters understanding between peoples. And yet, 
Once again, perhaps more than ever, the World Cup finds itself a tool of propaganda. With all that good, with all that is good about it, uh, sublimated, sublimated, so you say, to the needs of an authoritarian state. At its heart, the World Cup is an idealistic phenomenon, and those ideas have rarely felt so threatened. Yeah, I feel that. I feel that last bit is kind of um, the point of most things in life, and everything is idealistic. The Olympics is idealistic. The World Cup is idealistic. But at the end of the day, it can't be done. It can't. They can't. And that, and that's why and that's why they both specifically those two two things entities IOC FIFA of course that's why they both piss me off to a high degree because they you know they're talking about we need to be together and togetherness together we'll beat powers meanwhile you're in a fucking authoritarian state it just doesn't the 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 the, the lack of aware self awareness is so fucking jarring and it just makes me want to punch a wall it's just like it's just stupid. It's just stupid how and and you know there's always them um, uh, uh, those uptight uh, not uptight them uppity people to go like mm, well you know what what about this what about that or you 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 know this this was hosted here this was hosted there and I could be that person right I could be I could definitely be that person if I wanted to um, but <laughs> it just doesn't <laughs> well yeah it is it's 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 rotten at the core bruv. it's rotten at the core like they 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 gave china the ioc gave china the winter olympics and china only has like on average two days of snow it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense and it's just too bla- it's too obvious it's so fucking obvious at least when at least when fucking um is is honestly this is more this is just as obvious as you know 1936 Olympics. This is just as obvious as Mussolini World Cup in my mind. It's ob- it's it's so fucking obvious. It's so fucking obvious. Um, and uh, the fact that we haven't learned anything in a hundred years is just it. It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, and uh, yeah, man, you just have to stop. And you know, you just have to put it on yourself. Um, like me with, well, I'm not gonna watch the World Cup. And um, like me. When I'm not watching F1 anymore, you just got you just and <laughs> funny enough um, to go with what I was talking about at the start of the show. Some you just got to make that decision for yourself. You just got to make that decision for yourself. I I end up just um, laughing at it all and just continuing on with my life. Um, you know, and if you want to go enjoy it, if you got the cognitive distance to do so, it's bully for you. But for me, I can't do it anymore. I just can't. Speaking of can't do it anymore, um, something that I can't stop doing anymore um, is telling people that um, the people above you don't care. This connects, obviously, to... Well, when I say that, that connects mostly to, you know, government, the powers that be, they don't care about you, they don't give a fuck, right? They just want your vote, and they don't listen, okay? But, in the same, in the similar case, I'm saying that when it comes to people that have jobs. Like, um, you know, for years, my mum has... And, and she's a few months away from retiring now. Um, for years, she is... Well... For probably all of her life, she has complained about, you know, working certain jobs that she's had over the years. Most recently, she's been a pharmacist technician for over two decades, right? And she she always comes home and complains about people. She complains about her work. She complains about, and, and more recently, she complains about um, the powers that be in some way. Um, having forcing her to learn a new computer system and, st- and shit like that. She's in her 60s, man. She don't care. <laughs> like, she's just... She just wants to give people drugs and keep it moving. You know what I mean? But they they make they add shit on. They add shit for for no reason because it's a new company now that she doesn't know where they come from. Uh, at first, they were it was like an American company, and now it's given to a German company or vice versa. I don't fucking know, right? They don't care. They don't care about it, right? Um, put simply, so it it kind of um it makes me it makes me um not happy to say this all right it's not I'm, i don't feel gassed to say to tell people this um but uh you know i see news like this i'm about to read um which is uh, by ronnie mola 
uh, of a, a recode via Vox, and it's called Silicon Valley Layoffs are a reminder that your job won't love you back. And, you know, I'm not saying you can't love your job. I'm sure there's, you know, plenty of people that love what they do, and bully for them, guess. Good for you, man. If you find if you find purpose in your life, there is nothing there is nothing I can wish more for you. Honestly. Um I have found my purpose in life. And while the overall systems doesn't hasn't quite allowed me so far to fully fulfill that purpose, I'm gonna still keep at it because it's my purpose to do so, right? Um, so if someone's found their purpose in whatever, mate, guess, guess for you, man. I'm so happy for you. Like, there's nothing I can wish more on a person. Um, there's nothing I'd want more for a person to find their purpose in life, honestly. Um, no matter how big or small it is. Um, if you find your purpose, good for you. If you love your job, good for you. But in a capitalist society, they they, they don't love you. <laughs> they just don't. They they just don't. Anyway, let's jump right in. In a call with workers at Meta uh, on Wednesday, founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg uh, told employees, you've really put your heart and soul into this place before laying off roughly 11,000 people. So that's just comedy. Like That's that's just comedy. Oh, I care. You put, you put your heart and soul into this place. That's why I'm going to cut 11,000 of you. It's great. Unbelievable. Uh, Meta is joined by a number of other tech companies doing massive layoffs this year, and the trend serves as a stark reminder that your company, no matter how much you give, won't always love you back, and that's a, that's a, that's a thing. Like that that wordings needs to be broken down a bit, right? If you want to, don't give, don't ever, ever, honestly. I mean this empirically. Don't give your, don't give everything to your job, right? Give everything to your passion, but don't give everything to your job. Okay, those are two very different things. Um, and again. Loving it, and loving it is a loving it is a different thing, right? Everyone loves their passion. That's why it's their passion, right? You don't hate your passion. No, nobody, nobody hates their passion. So a passion is equal to loving your what you do, right? So if you have a passion for your job, then great, love your job. But if you're just doing your job and you're just working to get a check. Don't give all all you have. That's stupid. <laughs> don't do that. Just don't do that because you're not gonna get. You're not gonna get the. You're not gonna get. Uh, you're not gonna get equal compensation back. You're just not. Anyway, that's just in my mind how. That's how I see things. The layoffs in Silicon Valley come after a decades-long stre- uh, trend at tech companies to quote unquote live and breathe your job. Oh, that's horrible. Nope, 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 nope. Live and breathe your job. Nope, 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 nope. And make it part of your identity. Nope, 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 nope. Can't do that. Nope. A decade ago, Uber gloated that its workers always be hustling. Ah, horrible. While we work, his spells rise and grind. Horrible. I hate all of this. This makes me. This gives me hives already. These companies touted their rock walls, uh, laundry services, and exclusive chefs to show management's largress. The fuck is largress? Why is that? That's a weird-ass word. Largress. L-A-R-G-E-S-S-E. Liberal giving as of money to or as if uh, to an inferior something so given. Also generosity. Why wasn't that first? Fucking hell. Anyway. Generosity. Uh, but really, many of these perks could also be interpreted as just ways to keep people in the building past their normal working hours. Ding, 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 ding. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well done. Well done, Ronnie. Uh, Miss Moolah. Uh, tech companies in some ways have filled other voids in some workers' lives that might want, uh, what once might <coughs> have been filled by a community or church, according to Simone Stolzoff, author of the upcoming book, The Good Enough Job Reclaiming Life and Work, quote, there's this rhetoric around work where companies are telling employees that they can come here and do the best work of their lives, that they can change the world, uh, Stolzoff said. There's this sort of religion that's created around these different companies and their mission, unquote. With the great resignation and the more widespread acceptance of concepts like work-life balance, such uh, cooperating, has become passe. 
But that doesn't mean sentiment has died. Although people can get a lot of satisfaction out of their job, it can also be like a bad one-sided relationship, one that hurts employees who put their heart in the wrong place. Quote, we need to stop building and putting so much trust in companies. Brooks E. Scott, executive coach and CEO of Merging Path Told Recode, he encourages employees to keep their resumes updated and continue to develop professional relationships and in and outside their jobs, even when they're not looking for a new one. Losing a job can be crushing, but it shouldn't be a surprise. At the end of the day, a company is a business. As much as they say that, people are first, Scott said. There have been about... Well, uh, I've suddenly just did not learn how to read all of a sudden. 1118 thousand uh, tech layoffs this year um, as economic headwinds like high interest rates and low ad spending jar the industry according to company downsizing tracker layoffs.fyi uh, while that's not enough to seriously dent the millions of u.s tech jobs out there it's an unwelcome occurrence to tech workers who have gotten used to more than a decade of relative stability the meta layoffs which affect about 13 percent of the company's 87,000 employees will be concentrated in recruiting the business. The company wasn't more specific. Zuckerberg said in a memo accompanied the layoffs. Large-scale downsizing in Silicon Valley actually started uh, actually started earlier this year with layoffs at companies like Snap, Netflix, and Microsoft. Business software giant Salesforce laid off hundreds of workers this week, and payment processor Stripe laid off more than 1,000 last week. Then, of course, there were the massive layoffs at Twitter last week when the platform's new owner, Elon Musk, gave a, a masterclass in how not to lay people off. In the dead of night, Musk fired about half the company, many of whom found out they were getting let go uh, after not being able to access their email. The layoffs were so haphazard, some people were apparently fired by mistake and have since uh, received offers to return to the jobs they so, re- so recently had. As of the beginning of this week, those who remain still don't know who's left of the company or who they report to. From an HR perspective, the execution of uh, Meta's layoffs were nothing like Twitter's. Zuckerberg said all the right things. Like a number of other executives recently, he took accountability for the layoffs, saying he mistakenly thought the move of people and commerce online would be more uh, more permanent, and he grew headcount too fast. Zuckerberg listed the other cost-cutting measures the company had tried. The company got rid of its free laundry service and some other perks this spring, and the larger economic context in which the layoffs are happening. He was clear about what ongoing employees would receive, including a generous severance package with at least 16 weeks of pay and six months of health insurance. However, it's important to remember that Meta didn't have to hire as many people as it did, nor did Zuckerberg have to pour so many billions into bets like the Metaverse, which he's claiming is the future of the internet, but so far seems a lot like a lot like the present. In other words, Meta didn't have to lay people off. The company is still wildly profitable, and as Recode Shirin Ghaffari wrote in September, can afford to make payroll even in an economic downturn. Instead, Meta is choosing not to. Funny how that works. I wonder how much I wonder how much uh, Zuckerberg's earned, uh, quote unquote, earned in the past year. Hmm, interesting. Uh, Meta and other Silicon Valley companies are using economic circumstances uh, to trim fat and make remaining staff work harder. Meta wants to get back to a leaner startup mindset to appease shareholders and raise its dwindling stock price. It's working too. Uh, the stock prior, uh, stock is up twenty percent from last week, according to data from uh, financial platform. Sentio. What the fuck are these names? Uh, that's little consolation to those who just lost their livelihoods, which can be an especially difficult blow. Having a transactional mindset about work that it is that it is something you do in exchange for pay can help put things in pers- into perspective, and so can finding meaning outside of work. Said Stolzov. Thank you. Ding ding ding. Quote. Try and see this as an opportunity while you're searching for other jobs to also invest in other sources of identity and self-worth that no employer or job market has the power to take away from you, he said. Thank you. Goated. See what I mean? Perfect. Fucking perfect. It's exactly what I'm saying. Find your purpose. If it's in the work, then great. Happy for you. Gassed. So fucking gassed for you, right? But if it's not and you're just doing work just to work, get a check. Fucking do the bare minimum. Do what the, do what is only on your fucking job description, okay? Or whatever is in your contract. Do that, okay? Don't go the extra mile, please. 
maybe you do it from a networking perspective. Maybe you do it from a oh maybe they'll uh, you know maybe they'll notice me perspective. Maybe 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 that risk will be, maybe that risk will reward you. It's a gamble at the end of the day. But for me personally, I don't see it. I, it's just pff, no point, brother. No point, brother. Leave it at. Oh gosh, and speaking of layoffs, we have to get into another set of layoffs. Well, tech layoffs are something that, you know, just um, was a means to an end and... um, uh, for me to make an extra point, an overall point, uh, this is just s- straight wrong to me. <laughs> this this one's just straight wrong. So, caught this um, via The Voice, written by Vic Matoon. Um, it's called BBC t- uh, Set to Axe all, all its African-Caribbean local radio shows. That's absurd to me. Just just all of them. Just straight up, boom, all gone. Bam. Why? <laughs> Why the fuck? So, maybe there's an answer inside. Who knows? Let's jump right Black BBC staff have told The Voice they fear for the future of diverse programming after the corporation unveiled plans which will see all the African, Caribbean and Asian shows on BBC local radio scrapped from its schedules. Uh, last week, BBC bosses announced major plans to share programs and cut jobs on local BBC radio stations in England as part of what has been described as the biggest changes uh, to the corporation's local programming in a generation. General local programming will only survive will only survive on weekday mornings and lunchtime, 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. The rest of the output, apart from evening and weekend sport, will be shared either regionally or nationally. There will be six regions uh, going forward under the new audio editors, uh, covering Northwest, Northeast, South, uh, Yorkshire, and Lincolnshire, uh, Midlands, London, East, London and East, South and Southwest. Uh, I should have probably said just comma between them because some of them obviously clumped together but hopefully you got that local program will only air during the morning and lunch hours 6am to 2pm monday through friday it is believed that new uh, audio editors will be in charge of six distinct regions covering why am i reading this twice this <laughs> is it did you just said the same thing twice okay however black producers and presenters at the corporation fear the changes mean that shows targeted at african caribbean and asian audiences are set to disappear the concerns stem from the fact that these programmes air on Sunday nights, ex- exactly when the BBC is planning to decrease its local original programming. These include popular shows presented by broadcasters such as voice columnist Doton Adebayo, Ed Adu at BBC Three Counties, and uh, uh, several others. Uh, a number of black BBC staff who contacted The Voice say they expressed their concerns uh, to me- senior managers during a recent meeting about the proposed changes. They were told that despite the changes, the BBC had a commitment to serving diverse audiences and that alternative plans were being examined. These include combining all the African-Caribbean shows into one podcast to be broadcast on BBC Sounds and online platform. What the fuck does that mean? Oh, not even their own podcast, you know what I mean? Just one. Just clumping it all into one pod. That's just crazy. However, program staff is uh however, comma, program there's no comma in there for the for the for the record. Program staff have expressed doubts that such a move can accurately reflect the breadth of stories and issues in black communities across the country in in the way that the existing existing shows can. Ed Adu, who presents the African Caribbean show on BBC Three Counties. Uh, told the voice quote we had a meeting with bosses and were told that the bbc is committed to these shows but we have no idea what formal structure this commitment will take we're still waiting to hear unquote he continued i've always uh, trusted the, the bbc to deliver for local audiences excuse me in particular to the listeners of the african caribbean asian shows excuse me however i feel the bbc has really fallen short on its mantra of its mantra on diversity these sh- why am I, am I just hiccuping or burping though? What am I doing? Okay. Uh, these shows are the only platform for black and Asian communities on BBC Local Radio. It hasn't really reached out uh, to uh, to these audiences and told them that there is a commitment to delivering those important stories about the Windrush, for example, Sickle Cell, or the Luton or Northampton, Northampton Carnivals. Incredible stories which may not necessarily get shared on mainstream daytime outputs. The BBC is a public service broadcaster. Its output is funded by the licence fee payers and these audiences have a right to a voice. It just feels like the BBC hasn't really 
truly valued African-Caribbean and Asian programming on local radio. If they did, they would have consulted with these audiences, unquote. There were also concerns that the cuts will worsen an existing lack of diversity among BBC Radio staff. The 20, a 2021 report from this uh, Sir Lenny Henry Centre for Media and Diversity uh, provided a damning indictment of ethnic representation in BBC local radio newsrooms which are meant to serve communities across the country. The report, called Diversity of Senior Leaders in BBC Radio News, written by Nina Robinson, overseen by Dr. Siobhan Stevenson, uh, found that only 6% of the BBC Radio uh, BBC's radio news senior leadership across UK nations uh, are people of colour, and only 8% across its entire news and current affairs division. Quotes, when, uh, where, will be, where will the next generation of black and Asian journalists and broadcasters come from, said Adu. When you look at the newsrooms of BBC local radio stations and the numbers of black and Asian reporters are still very low. So if there are cuts to these programmes which impact the journalists and producers working on them, uh, then even these low numbers may decrease, unquote. Former BBC London presenter Henry Bonsu echoed Adu's fears about the proposed changes. He told The Voice, quote, I'll be concerned as uh, somebody who used to broadcast on BBC London and who has kept tabs on some of the diverse programming on the BBC across English regions. I remember the landmark BBC report People and Programmes from 1996, which led to the setting up of a lot of these diverse programmes around the the country. It found that BBC local radio had almost no black audience. These programmes uh, programmes, uh, helped to turn that around. It would be a shame if, at a time of heightened awareness of diversity and all the promises that BBC and other broadcasters have made post-George Floyd, the corporation were to roll back on these programmes. These shows are also often provide a path into wider regional broadcasting for underrepresented groups. Often people get their style broadcasting through these programmes. Uh, news, uh, unquote, news of the changes uh, follows a 2019 decision by the BBC to axe Doton on Sunday, the only black political talk show on radio or television in the UK. The Here's how bad it is. I had never heard of it. <laughs> That's crazy. That's fucking crazy to me. And and to be honest, I don't um I don't frequent local radio or radio in general, so that's probably my bad on one front. But still crazy. The fact there's just only one. Um but anyway. Uh the move attracted sharp criticism from listeners on social media, with many claiming the BBC's commitment to African Caribbean programming was waning. Uh but yeah. Well, I mean this axed anyway, it was Guy X in twenty 2019, hence probably why I never clocked it. But still, uh, you know. A petition was launched by the campaign groups BAME Lawyers, BAME Lawyers for Justice, and Barack UK. Okay. Uh, the, petition, the petition, which received 2,000 signatures, not only called for the reinstatement of Adebayo's Sunday night show, but increases diversity broadcasting for London's black communities. Following the petition, the BBC announced it would not cut Adebayo's show. See, it's a whole board of black activists rising against cults. Barack uh, UK, uh, Barack UK uh, played an instrumental role in launching the petition. She said the proposed changes would have a disproportionate impact on black production staff and listeners. Holborn said, quote, The BBC is required to carry out equality impact assessments before making decisions like these. Having been on these regional shows many times as a guest, I know they play an important role in focusing on issues stemming from systemic racism that impact our communities, such as the Windrush scandal, mass deportations and discrimination in the labour market and policing. It's important for our communities to have a space for us, uh, about about us and run by us in mainstream media. My organisation, Bright UK, which has campaigned against uh, race discrimination in broadcasting and in the media on a number of occasions, is ready to campaign for efforts to keep these programmes on air. Unquote. In a statement given to The Voice, the BBC said we are committed to reflecting on all communities and output. We will confirm programmes and new schedules in due course. Uh, we're investing in more audio commissioning for community programs in particular so that voices and programs our audiences love and feel deeply connected to will be available to wider audience on BBC Sounds. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, shift all to BBC Sounds. Uh, <laughs> that's great. Uh, we are in d- direct conversations with everyone impacted by these proposals. We will look at each program on a case by case basis. We will always have the door open for future existence. More broadly, the BBC remains committed to reflecting and represent- representing diverse audiences it serves on, both on and off air. Latest figures show more black, Asian, and ethnic minority staff are joining the BBC than leaving, as published in the BBC's Equality Information Report. Unquote. Oh, that's good to know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm reading some of the comments on it actually. It's kind of um, 
it's kind of a it's, it's some fascinating um uh, 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 fascinating uh, comments. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. It's just it's it's just a bit crazy. Um, of just how they just yeah that <laughs> let's just ask that. It's you know, I mean, it's just just doesn't it just doesn't it leaves a bad taste in my mouth just to and I don't and this is kind of um you know objectively um this comes at a this is coming from an angle of just um a little bit of assuming right but judging by what they've cut recently it only makes sense right um so maybe maybe not um and maybe it all go to that one podcast which still blows my fucking mind um but yeah i would actually like to know i think more about how many there are right so we had a couple mentioned but how many you know uk uh, uh, uh local radio shows and uh, stuff like that um how many uh, that are that are non-white focused and non-white centered how many are there actually um uh, obviously, they had the percentage um, of like uh, what was it eight eight percent I think um, overall. But you know, I, I just I just wanted to, I just want I, I always like the full picture on that front. So, uh, but yeah, man. Regardless of that, man, it's just um, you know I've I've always the BBC is always a fascinating thing, right? Where you know obviously I'm, uh, they celebrated its hundredth birthday recently, and I wanted to do an article based on it, but I can really find a good one. Um, but it is you know, overall very good thing, but sometimes, and especially more recently, um, it's just gotten, it just gets a little bit worse, you know what I mean, they just do, they just do dumb shit now and again, it's just like, why, and not even stuff like, I'm not even talking about the political shit where they have like Nigel Farage on to talk about immigration, where, you know, that's a media-wide issue, that's, that's a media-wide issue, the media just cannot have a conversation about immigrate things like immigration properly because they bring on people like fucking Farage. They can't talk about the economy properly because they bring on dipshits like them fuckers that are on you know think tanks, right? Right wing think tanks, and you know they just they're just given free reign to spout their bollocks, even though it's shit, right? And especially people like Farage, right? Doubly shit. Um. Regard, I'm not even talking about that stuff, but just you know, decisions like decisions like these are just supremely concerning in my mind. So, yeah, man. Um, if there's a petition going on, let me know. Um, you know what I mean. But uh, yeah, man. Hopefully, the BBC just um changes its position. I guess. Um, I'm, I'm sure they're not gonna uh, change the local local times. Uh, probably and obviously focus on the sick regions that's pretty solid seemingly um, but hopefully they there there is space for the non-white uh, contingent of the UK to have their voice heard on local radio And if not, you can always start a podcast like me. Anyway, speaking of, let's jump right into our last topic, um, which is the arts. And um, I found this interesting. I found um, this uh, article about failure um, in creativity, and I was just like, hmm, I failed a lot. <laughs> so, and, uh, and uh, it spoke to me a little bit. So, and uh, hopefully, you can speak to some of you in your, what I like to call creative journey. You know what I mean? Creative careers, you know, um, some people have that, some people don't. But everyone has a create. People that pursue creativity, um, in in whatever form it is, um, it's always a journey for everybody, and that's ubiquitous. So, I like I like saying that. Um, so yeah, this is by um Stephen Langston, who's a senior lecturer and program leader for for for, for performance at the University of uh the West of Scotland. Very specific, not the University of Scotland, the West of Scotland. Um. Uh, it's via the conversation, and it's called How Early Failure Can Lead to Success Later in Creative Careers. So, let's see what he's saying. Um, and you can actually listen to this article on the app, uh, on, on the on the, on the the website. Um, why would you do that when you have what's good? So, 
uh, <laughs> John Bryan. Uh, early failing, uh, failing early in our careers. That's probably why. <laughs> that's probably why you, you listen on browsers so you don't have me just uh, trip it up for the first fucking word. <laughs> oh gosh, but you know, I just like, I just like keeping it raw, man. Keep it raw, man. Like, I make, I make, I make flubs. You know what I mean? We, we're all, we're all human. Unless it's a long read, where I actually try properly, because. Um, you know, I'm not trying to waste time on 20 minute reads. Ugh, ugh, goddamn. Can't be bottling those. Anyway. Failing early in our careers, good start, can make us question whether we are on the right path. We may look at uh, people who have succeeded from the outset and wonder why it doesn't come so easily to us. Classical violinist Nigel Kennedy, actor Natalie Portman, and painter Pablo Picasso are examples of young geniuses who were successful early on. Um, look up um, Natalie Portman's. Uh, Real name, crazy, uh, real name. But anyway, but for some of us, definitely different to Nanny Portman's. It's just fascinating how people change their names. Uh, but for some of us, uh, failure at the beginning of our careers is important to later success. For many creators, how we deal with those moments when things aren't going right, uh, going right, or you've received yet another rejection letter can make or break us. The author and self-improvement lecturer Dale Carnegie maintained that inaction breeds doubts and fear. Action creates confidence and courage, which inevitably ends up helping a person to succeed. This chimes with what American psychologist Carol Dweck uh, outlined in her 2006 book, Mindset. Mindset, grindset. <laughs> uh, Dweck uh, discusses uh, the concept of people with a quote-unquote fixed mindset versus a quote-unquote quote unquote, growth mindset. The former is a way of thinking where there is a lack of self-belief uh, and a negative persona, while the latter is when no challenge or task is too large to take on board. Which mindset you have dis- dictates how you interpret failure and success and how well you approach everyday life. So I'm trying to think if I actually have a growth mindset. I feel like I do because most of the things I do at this moment in time is a money sinkhole. So and I and I, and I can't help but my help myself but think in terms of financials because it's a, it, it it compounds it really does it compounds um and there will come there might come a time where I just have to cut something off because I just can't simply afford to do so anymore um and that depresses me but I think that gives me the growth mindset because I do I don't I don't think there is a challenge uh too large for me um i write scripts with, with i write screenplays with the assumption that i'll probably never get it made even when i'm writing writing right now actually i've done this a couple times actually um where i've written i've just written uh, a script based off a book i like um uh, and i do it mainly for um just a uh, just a fight just to just to give myself a different style to write in because when you write off a novel, and obviously because novels uh, can be so descriptive, um, you start to put some of that description in. Not not all of it, obviously, because it's still a screenplay at the end of the day, and you have to adhere to the rules of you know don't show, don't tell, uh, all that crap. Um, but it, it you you add words that you haven't added before, and, it, and you know it's it's interesting. It's interesting when you read it again. You just like, hmm. while it's not hundred percent me, obviously, um, at the end of the day, I'm just transcribing or or just moving text over, but. Um, but it's, it's, it's fascinating um, and even with that you do, you can get creative as well um, but regardless of that I don't make them with the intention of making them because I don't know the author <laughs> I can ask them um, if they if they want it I'll, 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 I'll happily do that um, and I probably will one day um, but you know I don't intend for it to be made because at the end of the day it's their work and I'm just interpreting their work if anything um, so, you know, I don't like to, I, I don't do it in bad faith. I don't do it because I'm stealing their idea. You know what I mean? Oh, I like that idea. Let me see that. Not, not, that's not what I'm trying to do. But anyway, a passion for learning and a desire to improve upon failure creates opportunities to learn and challenge yourself. This mentality is a boon to creatives. While yes, there are Picassos and Portmans of the world, there are also a few famous creatives who had to overcome failure early on in their careers. These individuals demonstrated, demonstrate the growth mindset. A young school teacher from Maine, United States, was a passionate part-time writer who worked tirelessly trying to get his novels published unsuccessfully in the late 1960s. 
He continued to believe in himself and chased the dream of becoming a successful author. But sometimes the reality of failure gets the better of a person, and after 30 rejections, he famously threw his fourth attempt at a novel away. Fortunately, the manuscript uh, was saved by his wife, who, having confidence in his work, persuaded him to continue trying. Excuse me. Eventually, the novel was sold uh, for an advance of £2,000, a nice bonus for a school teacher. The publishing rights were ultimately purchased for an additional 200000 and the novel Carrie turned Stephen King into a household name. Interesting. Uh, dreams can propel us forward, uh, but they can also be crushed crushed by rejection. The composer Jonathan Larson spent years working on his 991 musical Superbia, only for it to be turned down by theatre producers. He was told by his agent to, quote, go away and write something you know about, unquote. This was a crushing moment for Larson. Eight years of work rejected. However, he listened to the advice in his next musical Rent, appear, uh, premiered on Broadway in 1996, becoming a box office sensation. Semi-all biographical Tick, Tick, Boom, which Larson uh, began performing as a one-man show in 1990, went on to also be a hit when it premiered in 2001. It re- has recently been turned into a major motion picture, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Larson's secret was to learn from failure and take on advice given to him. Uh, he used that experience to propel himself forward. Sadly, not, Larson never witnessed his triumph. He died on the eve of Rent's Broadway premiere in 1996 from an uh, aortic dis- dissection, uh, but his life, including his failures, made him successful. His roadblocks became his inspiration. Both of his successful productions tell uh, the stories of larger-than-life characters struggling with their failings while trying to achieve a degree of success. There are situations in life that conspire to make us fail. However, adversity can often act as a springboard of determination to succeed. My turning point as a youngster was failing my grade 5 music theory exam. That one singular event, although heartbreaking, made me determined to succeed in music and become a composer and producer of Scottish musicals. Others, others deal with much more difficult circumstances. Imagine being homeless, penniless, with a partial facial paralysis yet dreaming of an acting career, never-ending rejection from talent scouts and agents, hours of waiting for appointments that never materialise, such a life would be demoralising. However, the realisation of personal failure can become a catalyst for success. This real-life scenario eventually earned Sylvester Stallone over $178 and catapulted his writing and acting career to stardom. He didn't let these circumstances which led to failure stop him. The key here... Um, is that he believed in his ability and that drove him uh, that drove him onward. Continual failure reinforced his revol- resolve to succeed. Steven Spielberg had poor high school grades and was rejected three times from film school. He battled through his early career failures before eventually directing 51 films and winning three Oscars. Again, it was his perseverance and self-belief that drove his determination to succeed. We might never become the next Spielberg, King or Larson, but the lesson learned from their experiences is a sharp reminder of the mantra of playwright Samuel Beckett. Quote, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. Failure is not damaging. It is a part of of a proactive progression. And once we learn to accept that we might be unstoppable... uh, Once we learn to accept that, we might be unstoppable. I eventually passed my grade 5 theory... Uh, exam and went on to get two degrees and a PhD in musical theatre. The rest is history. My personal history began with a failure for which I am very proud. Um, and there's also a, I think it's a podcast. Let me click it right quick. Um, no, it's just a set of articles. So an article, a set of arc- a series of articles um, called Quarter Life. Um, it's a series uh, about issues affecting those of us in our twenties and thirties. Um, I might jump into a couple of those. Um, yeah, it might might be um. Might be, might be cool to have a look at. Um, let me see some of these. Moving back home doesn't mean you failed in life. Here's why. Well, there you go. That's a good one. Three <laughs> uh, ways to become more resilient to failure. Uh, philosophy can help us deal with failures that seem insurmountable. Uh, how the philosophy behind the Japanese art form of kintsugi can help us navigate failure. Um, and that's just a couple of them. So, uh, yeah, if you want to jump on those, be, by all means, go for it. I might actually jump into a couple. However, I said, ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm going to keep on failing. And um, with that said, well, this from the Fifth M Podcast Network, I'm a child to this bit most good. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chill Music for the beat to use the track. Uh, you can find both their links in the full show notes. Thanks to a friend of mine, Vinapi, for the beat to use Charismatic for the interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes. 
And uh, yeah, with that said, I think this is, I think, how many episodes do we have left of this? Um, so we have two, after this episode, one more episode um, before um, I hop off for my uh, December hiatus. Um, but never fear, I do. And there's actually also Wasker's birthday next week as well. I forget what day specifically. I think it's the 23rd. Um, so I'll be actually re-recording my episode um, on the 23rd. Um, so yeah, it's going to be Wasker's birthday next week. Could be celebrating that. I'm not doing anything special, just a regular show. Um, but um, I'll st- I'll give some credence to it. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll be on hiatus um, during December. I'll be doing my end of year list. Um, right, I've I've finished up an essay on hip hop. Um, so I'll be um, editing that and dropping that um, at the around the around January, early January, and uh, you know, plenty of other things. But there will be some what's good um, related stuff um, going on throughout December. Um, it will come on the feed. Um, so never fear, you will get some care packages. Um, but uh, you'll have to wait till next week uh, to find out what that care package is. Oh, is. Smash is. Um, and uh, yeah, with that said, I hope you have a good week. I should always try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.